So at the end of uh, chapter 4, we were looking at these 12 important things about church membership, 12 reasons membership matters. We did the first six last week. So I'm just going to read these for you. It's not on the handout for this week, but it'll be, it'll, uh, be an opportunity for us to think about these last few here. Uh, church membership is how you serve other Christians. This is number seven. Membership helps you know which Christians on planet Earth you are specifically responsible to love, serve, warn, and encourage. It enables you to fulfill your biblical responsibilities to Christ's body. Now, there's a general responsibility that is put on us, I think, to serve any Christian. But the practical reality is you and I only have so much time in a week, right? And so there is an element of proximity and commitment that drives where we pour the most time and energy into our relationships. And so if we were looking at this in terms of, of concentric circles, um, it would be something along the lines of that we have, you know, your local church, right? And then we have the church as a whole. Okay? In terms of, of that sort of thing. But there is a degree of overlap in terms of this, in terms of proximity, that would look more like a Venn diagram where you have family, you have local church, and then you have people nearby. So I don't want to make it sound like it's just the church that we're supposed to serve, right? There are people that we have relationships with due to our families. There are people who are in proximity to us, often in terms of outreach opportunities. There's also our local church, so there's some overlap between all those sorts of things. Any quick thoughts on that, or does that make sense? Okay. Uh, but I have a unique responsibility to these people that we've committed to one another in the local assembly in a way that, you know, I have a friend who pastors a church in Commerce Township, or one that pastors a church in Sterling Heights. Do I have a responsibility to encourage them? Yes. Do I have the same responsibility to encourage them that I do to each of you? No. Uh, and so I think that helps us and frees us from feeling like we just have to pour ourselves in everybody and, and it's impossible. Because, I mean, quite honestly, how many people can you realistically pour your life into? It's probably less than 20. For most people, it's probably somewhere between 5 and 10, right, in any given week. Uh, between, especially if you're working full-time, especially if you have responsibilities at home. And so in terms of prioritizing, that's what we're talking about. We're not saying ignore people outside the local church. We're not saying ignore people who are more than 50 miles away. We're just saying there's only so much of you to go around, and if you try to say, I'm going to do all these things for all these people... Um, God has put you in a particular time and place for a particular purpose. And we need to be open to when God unexpectedly brings people in that don't sort of fit that model. But we also need to realize that it is easy to say yes to too many things and overextend ourselves. And this ministry down at Clemson, there was a graduate student from China that I was doing Bible studies with. He ended up moving to somewhere on the West Coast, California, Washington State, I can't see him every week and do a Bible study with him anymore, so my only contact at that point is the email, right? And to the extent that he is not willing to reply to those emails, it becomes a very one-sided sort of effort, 
and if I'm ignoring opportunities to meet face to face with people and have more Bible studies in a local context because I'm trying to force this uh, relationship to continue when there's not interest on the other person's part, um, then there's perhaps a degree to which I'm not using my time the best to, to honor God in that. Uh, so the local church is an opportunity for us to say who specifically am I supposed to minister to as a starting point, as a frame of reference. It's how you follow Christian leaders. Can, is there a sense in which you can follow John MacArthur if he is modeling godly leadership? Sure, but he's not your pastor. And I'm not saying that because I'm jealous if you listen to his sermons, because there's probably, I mean, he's studied the Bible for far longer and far deeper than I have. So I freely admit that, right? But he doesn't know what you're going through this week. And that's where the local church is an opportunity for me to be able to connect with you and, and encourage or rebuke you as the situation warrants in a way that someone on the other side of the country can't do. And so that's where the relationships in a local church are helpful. It helps Christian leaders lead. So your side of it is, to the extent that I'm proclaiming God's truth, you need to listen to it. My side of it is, who am I doing this ministry for? And that's where there needs to be a clear awareness of who's part of the assembly and who isn't, because if I feel like I have responsibility for this random person over here, and they say, what are you doing trying to be involved in my life? I don't, I don't, not a part of your church. I don't care what you think about me, that sort of thing it's going to be a frustrating exercise. It enables church discipline. So if there's no clear awareness of who is part of an assembly and who is not, then there can be no practical way in which we say this person is no longer part of it because of unrepentant sin. Now the goal is always restoration. The goal is not to get someone who causes problems to be kicked out. Paul you know, calls the two women who are fighting in the church. He says, you need to repent, you need to turn to God, all those sorts of things. He says to them, the, to them about this man who's, you know, committing immorality with presumably his, his stepmom in, um, in this context. He's, uh, he's saying, you can't live this way. This is not even how the unbelievers live. But as soon as that guy repents, he says, all right, now you need to receive him back. And so the goal of church discipline is not to get people kicked out and to isolate them, but it, also, it is also an important thing for the health and purity of the church, and it can't happen if we don't know who's part of the church and who isn't. So there needs to be some degree of awareness of that, however formal it is. It gives structure to your Christian life, places an individual Christian's claim to obey and follow Jesus into a real-life setting. It's God's discipling program. So you can claim, I'm a Christian all you want, and say, here's all the things I do, but if there is not an accountability to a local assembly to be evaluating those things regularly and come alongside you and say, hey, you say you love Jesus, but why are you doing this? Or you say you love Jesus, why are you not doing that? You need that sort of connection with people, and it happens in the context of the local church. And then uh, the last one, number 12, it builds a witness and invites the nation. Membership puts the alternative rule of Christ on display for the watching universe. The very boundaries drawn around the membership of a church yields a society of people that invites the nations to something better. It's God's evangelism program. If the church is disorganized and chaotic and not full of any awareness about who's part of it or not, if we don't call people to do hard things and to follow God through difficult circumstances, we are giving people an incomplete picture of what discipleship actually means. And when people have an opportunity, like it talks about in 1 Corinthians, to come in and observe God's work firsthand, that's supposed to be something that motivates people to say, yes, I want to be a part of it too. And it should not be something where they walk in and say, why would I ever want to be a part of this? Because it's a disaster, right? 
And so clear structure, organization, following what God's called us to do is important in all those ways. Any quick thoughts on those before we move on to week five? All right, week five, church membership. What are the standards of membership? Becoming a member. Uh, here's the questions. Who gets in? Who gets to be a church member? Who is considered part of the local body? Here's the really simple answer, the super simple answer. Christians. And we want to add, I think, sometimes a lot of things to that. And in some cases, people want to even take that one away. They want to say anybody. You want to come? You come, right? But there's a difference between coming to observe and coming to be a part of. So there's that correction to the, to the anybody side of it. And then there's the Christians plus year-long discipleship program, certain level of spiritual maturity, uh, all these criteria that we've come up with. The corrective to that is to say Christians. That was the standard of, of participation in the church in the New Testament. Um, People, he goes on a little bit later to say that people need to be able to explain the gospel. Well, let me just start with this. Some people dismiss church membership because they think it means making people jump through hoops or erecting standards of behavior for the sake of entry. These sound like the opposite of God's grace, which is free. It's not hard to see why people think this way. Typically, membership involves meeting a standard of some kind. You have to be rich enough for the country club, smart enough for the debate team, caring enough for the charity society. To be a member is to be, by definition, something that others are not. This sounds dangerously exclusive. Is this moralism of Phariseeism? Christianity is not about standards. It is easy to move in a moralistic direction with church membership. So if we see it as an opportunity to look at other people and say, I'm better than you, that's a danger we need to acknowledge. But what are the standards of church membership? He says in his church, if someone's going to join, there's this opportunity for an interview that he as the pastor does with the prospective member. And the point of doing that is to say, should this person be a member or not? Who gets in? The super, super simple answer is Christians. Um, he says, people cannot always explain the gospel well, but in one way or another, they must be able to explain it. So there could be a language barrier, Right? Someone, like we use a phrase in English, like the gospel. And maybe someone's first language is not English. Maybe it's Spanish. Maybe it's Mandarin. Maybe it's whatever, right? And they say the gospel, and they say, I don't know what you mean. So then he says, the good news of Jesus Christ. Oh, and the person explained, because there was a language barrier. We need to acknowledge that possibility. There may be an experience or background barrier, right? You didn't grow up in church. You're not going to necessarily throw out a word like justification in when you explain what is the gospel. That's okay. As long as you understand important biblical concepts like turning away from sin, turning to God, believing in Jesus is the only way, right? We don't have to be able to say things like there needs to be a conformity to true and genuine repentance in the experience of every believer, we do need to be able to say, you turn from your sin, you turn to Jesus. We don't need to be able to say that the practical outworkings of faith in the life of the believer is that there is an ongoing sanctification. But we do need to be able to say, if you believe in Jesus, you're not going to live in sin anymore. So it doesn't have to be Christian jargon, but we do have to understand what being a Christian is, right? And so, um, you know, if someone comes up with a phrase like, well, being a Christian is doing your best. Trying to be a good person. 
Is that, is that genuine? That's not genuine Christianity, right? That's what a lot of people think Christianity is. Trying to be a good person. Obeying without trusting. Now, the order is important. It's trust and then obey because until you trust in Jesus, you can't obey on your own, right? And if we get that backwards, we haven't understood the gospel and so that's a really important thing. Um, but then that in and of itself becomes an opportunity to explain what the gospel is. So the very act of having this barrier, if you will, is a good thing. All right, moving on from that for just a second. What are some of the extra things churches have added beyond being a Christian to requirements for church membership? Jim? Attendance. Attendance. You have to be a church. Okay. Yeah. Now, is being at church important? Yes. yes. But it is really easy, and, you know, I think Christian schools are a good thing. I think an, a concern for accountability is a good thing. But if we say this person was at church three times this month instead of four, so they don't love Jesus, we are coming dangerously close to, to adding to sort of the expectation for church membership. Now, we've got to recognize someone shows up to church twice a year, they don't have a meaningful relationship with the church and potentially don't have a meaningful relationship with Jesus, right? And so if a person's pattern is to show up twice a year and then they say, you know, the second year after they've shown up twice, they're like, hey, I want to join your church, we would need to have a conversation about why you're only coming twice a year, right? It could be ignorance. They don't know they're supposed to come more often than that. That's all their family ever did growing up. It could be a degree of... Um, of uh, just priorities, like I am doing golf on weekends with my buddies, or I'm going on a shopping trip with my friends, or, or uh, you know, I think my kids are really important, so we're going to take the weekend because during the week is busy. It could be a misunderstanding of priorities, so it could be an issue of just not understanding the importance of it, of wrong priorities. It could be an issue of I really don't care about all this, so I'm not going to be there. And if that's their attitude, then that's a big problem in terms of, uh, of church membership. But attendance in and of itself is not the primary or driving factor to whether someone should join the church. What are some other ones? Yes. Okay. Now, is it important to believe certain things? Yes. But what is the bare minimum that someone needs to believe to be a part of a church? It needs to be a little bit more than believe in God, although that's part of it. Yeah? Okay. And what else? There's a few other things that are really important. Tina? Okay. I, yeah, I mean, absolutely, the Bible teaches that. That's, I think we would say the Trinity is a first-level doctrine. Given the fact that even people who have contemplated it for years and years have difficulty explaining it, I think we would want to say at least that they would acknowledge it, even if they can't fully explain it. Uh, what are some other basic aspects of the gospel? We said that God exists, that Jesus is the way to God. Rob? Okay. Uh, what do we do with Spurgeon who believed in the gap theory? 
Well, the gap theory is the idea that um, between Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1-2, the earth was formless and void. They would translate it as the earth became formless and void. And so there was all this ancient civilization that was destroyed and there was this chaos. And it's, a, it's one of the early attempts to meld creation and evolution that was popular in the 1800s. Right, so if someone is a, is, is a theistic evolutionist, God used the processes of evolution to bring about the world. Could they be a church member? It's difficult, right? Let's, let's just go back to the basics, though. God, God is holy. Man is a sinner. Jesus is our Savior, the only way into God, right? And then there's an aspect of an action. We need to turn to God, right, for salvation, right? So at least those four basic things are kind of part of what it means to say this person is a Christian. Now, how do we reconcile? Well, um, we'll get to that in the next question, so we won't talk about it now. So things that people have added to being a membership are attendance requirements, um, a certain level of doctrinal awareness, we could say the amount of knowledge that someone has, and there, are, there is a minimum, right? But we tend to want to expect that somebody who walks in knows everything that you do after having been in church for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, which is a little bit unreasonable, I think, right? Because the, if that's the case, then the only people who ever join the church are people who are leaving other churches, and that can be unhealthy in all sorts of ways, or people who um, are finally getting around to joining the church who have been in church all their lives but just have never actually made that commitment, and that completely excludes this what should be a really good big group of people that are coming to the church, which is those who've trusted Jesus and are now learning more about him. Any other extra things that people might add to requirements for church membership, either to get in or to stay in. Although we're talking mainly about the getting in part. Luis? Baptism. Baptism. Now, he does make this interesting point. He says, uh, you know, being a Christian part of... Let me see if I can find the phrase here. He says the standard for church membership should be no higher or lower than the standard for being a Christian, with one exception, which I'll come to in a moment. Let's talk about the statement of faith idea. Um, 2,000 years have passed, and false teaching has only proliferated. That's why most churches have statements of faith that address God, Scripture, sin, salvation, the church, and Jesus' return. The goal in asking a person to affirm a statement of faith is not to affirm professional theologians, it's to affirm Christians. Listen to Jesus' standards. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. In other words, churches should tune their ears for a spirit-given brokenness and humility before God. What does such brokenness sound like? It sounds something like this. Yes, I'm a rotten sinner. Yes, God should judge me. But yes, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Now he's my Lord and I'm following him. What does a broken heart sound like? It sounds like the beginning of good doctrine and like a heart that trusts what the Bible says about God and about us. He says, Christianity doesn't only begin with faith, therefore neither does church membership. Both begin with repentance. 
He says a little bit later, if I were to write a standards guide for those conducting membership interviews, I would go straight to Matthew's Beatitudes. Look for those who are poor in spirit, who mourn their sin, who aren't entitled, insisting on their own way, but are meek, who are sick to death of sin and all its nonsense, and so hunger and thirst for righteousness like it is water. When you find people like that, make sure they know who Jesus is. Make sure Jesus is the one who fills their impoverished spirit, who has forgiven their sins, who receives their life in worship, and whose righteousness they depend upon and pursue. When you find such people, tell them to join. Notice it's not a person's moral perfection. It's just the opposite. It's a recognition of a lack of moral perfection coupled with a hunger for it. It's not people who never sin, but people who fight against sin. A church's judicial work is, not to, is to affirm not the righteous, but the unrighteous who thirst for righteousness. Here's another way. What makes people acceptable to a church is not their own moral purity, but Christ's, not what they've done to save themselves, but what God has done to save them. So, um, let's go to this next question. Why is it unloving and unhelpful to admit someone to membership who can't explain the gospel? Faith repentance, all these things we've been talking about. Why is it unloving and unhelpful to get someone into membership who doesn't understand those basics? Bob? Going back, well, number one, if they can't explain it at all, you have to question whether or not they, they know what it is. Sure. Trust it themselves. Okay. citizenship or something along those lines, right? Yeah. Then how can they be an ambassador? Sure. And to flesh that out, I don't think we should always um, fear worst-case scenarios, but there's a reality if we are careless about who we recognize in the assembly as genuine believers, there is eventually going to come a point when people who aren't actually Christians outnumber those who are, and that's going to have a definite impact on the trajectory of the church. I think back to Jonathan Edwards' day, there was this expectation that all these people were part of the church, even though they'd never turned to Jesus, right? What ended up happening? Churches were dead. They didn't love Jesus. They didn't follow God. They were empty and pointless. And so while that is not the first or main concern, it is a concern that if we say, oh yeah, you can be a member because we just feel like we need more members, or we feel like, well, this is a really nice person, or whatever else, here's what this person can do for us. If, if we have those unbiblical standards for it, then it, um, it's going to skew the direction of the church. Is it adding works or unnecessary jumping through hoops to have this process of evaluating whether someone really knows Jesus? Is it, is it adding more than what the Bible adds to it? Now, I would say no. Now, I will freely admit, the Bible does not seem to indicate they pulled out the parchment. They wrote down the names of the 3,000 people, right? It doesn't say that in the verse, at least, right? We can at least acknowledge that. Um, but what are some things that told the early church that all these people were part of the early church? That was a fact, but that wasn't, that's not really what I'm looking for. What did those people who were added to the assembly then do? 
What's that? They got baptized and they assembled, right? So that's where the attendance thing comes back around. The goal is not to check off attendance as though you're going to get a gold star for how many times you show up. But if you say you're part of an assembly and you don't assemble, you're not really part of the assembly, right? Um, you have to understand the gospel. There has to be a commitment, right? Um, we'll come back to, well, let's see. We'll come back to baptism at the end here. How does a statement of faith help clarify beliefs for possible members? Someone will read 1 John 4, 1 through 3. Who would like to read that for us? 1 John 4. Jonathan? This you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does, does, that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming, and now it is already in the world. Why do we need a statement of faith? Verse 1. What exists in the world? False prophets. So if there's false prophets, that means there are going to be things that sound like Christianity that aren't. So, and I would argue, we need a statement of faith more now than we did, than we would have in the early church. I want to be careful with that because it could be skewed all sorts of ways. Because there have been the church councils that argued about different points like the deity of Christ and the nature of the church, because there have been all the sorts of cults and false beliefs that have arisen in the last couple of thousand years. There needs to be a little bit more clarity and definition about what genuine Christianity is than in the context of where it was basically paganism, Judaism, and Christianity. That's pretty straightforward that Christianity was different from those two, right? It's less clear at first glance how Christianity is different from being a Mormon or being a Jehovah's Witness, or being a, a Jainist, or being a Buddhist, or some of these sorts of things, unless you start talking about doctrinal things, right? So, it helps to clarify belief for possible members, but like we were talking about a little bit ago, the beliefs that we are trying to clarify are, do you really know who God is and who you are and what that means for what you need to do? Not, can you come up with a clear explanation for all the details of the Millennial Temple at the end of Ezekiel? Is that an important thing to consider? Sure. Is that essential to salvation in the same way that Jesus is God and you're a sinner? No. So that's why we need a statement of faith to help clarify beliefs for potential members. Here is the tension that I always come back to. How much does a person need to know before you let them in? And here would be my answer. They need to have read through the statement of faith and said, I don't have any immediate disagreements with anything in it. They do not necessarily have to say, I understand all the details of everything in it. 
But here's what I don't want to see happen. There was a movement in the Presbyterian denominations, and I think later in some of the Baptist denominations, around the early 1900s, and here's what happened. You had pastors, prospective pastors coming from seminaries that didn't teach the Bible, coming into churches and saying, um, yeah, I agree with the statement of faith, except these two or three things. I have reservations about them. So there's this whole big discussion in the denomination. Should we let people have reservations about doctrines? And they said, sure. Here's the problem. You went from having reservations about two or three minor points to basically ignoring the whole statement of faith and saying whatever you wanted. And so then practically you've thrown out the statement of faith, the church ends up denying the gospel, and the church dies. So there has to be a biblical balance between an unreasonable expectation of knowledge like you just trusted Jesus, explain systematic theology beginning and end. They can't do that. Or the other extreme of, you don't really have to agree with any of it. Uh, as long as you're a nice person and you get along with us, we'll let you in. And I think the balance is this. You may not be able to explain everything in the statement of faith. You may not understand everything in the statement of faith, but you are willing to agree to the statement of faith. And if down the road you find that you disagree, you are willing to say that and, and accept what that means, which is basically that you can no longer be a part of the church. Now, there needs to be grace from the church in that, because if someone was reading through the statement of faith and they say, I'm really struggling with this, it's not like they admit that and we're like, you're out. There needs to be conversations about it, right? But if someone comes to a point and they just say, you know what, I've become convinced that Jesus is not God, and you take time to talk with that person and try to study the Bible with that person, and they're still not convinced of it three months, six months down the line, we have no choice but to say, no choice but to say it can't be a part of the church anymore because this is a core, important, essential thing, right? Um, let's go to the next question because there's another point I want to raise for you. Why is it important that our statement of faith is not overly specific and that it clarifies the differences between distinctives of our church and the core of Christianity? Bob? Okay? Somebody who believes that the kingdom of God is ushered in by the preaching of the gospel and we need to transform society in that way is going to change their emphasis in what they've spent a lot of their time doing in their church, but they can still genuinely be going to heaven, right? So if we have a difference about the nature of the kingdom, we can both be Christians and disagree. If we say, eh, Jesus isn't coming back, then we're denying things that are really clear in the Bible, right? And, and that's why there's a difference between Jesus is coming back and when Jesus comes back, here's exactly what it's going to look like. Or in the meantime, what does it look like, right? Uh, what other reasons is it important that a statement of faith is not overly specific based on what we were just talking about? Particularly in the scenario of having a new believer. Why is it important that our statement of faith is not too specific? Yeah, Devin. Right. We're not trying to create this obstacle that says you have to believe all of these things and know all of these things. There are things that are really important that come out in the preaching and teaching of God's Word that we don't need to have every last thing in the statement of faith. Because for one, 
then it just gets thrown in a corner and ignored, a drawer or thrown in the trash or whatever. And then also, um, there's not, there's sort of this, how do I put it? Because churches in many instances have been terrible about practicing church discipline and kicking people out, they feel like the main goal is to keep people from ever getting in. But if you have a clear awareness of the path for people to leave if they refuse to believe what's true, and you have a reasonable set of expectations for people to come in, then both those things work together. And we don't have to front load so much the, can you get in? Here's this really high fence here, and then we just ignore anybody ever leaving, right? Um, Here's another thing that I think we should consider. If we find that some aspect of what we have considered our church distinctives is in fact unbiblical or the wording needs to be adjusted or something like that, that gives us the possibility to reword or adjust that portion of our statement of faith without calling into question the core of what it means to be a believer. Now, I want you to understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying the word of our statement of faith because it is a reflection of Scripture, it's not Scripture itself. But what I don't think should change is any of the important truths that we laid out in the first half of it. What could theoretically change if, and you know, I want to be careful here because I don't want to give you the impression that I, I read my Bible and then all of a sudden I say, all right, let's just change everything about what we're doing. But if I became convinced of something, that contradicted one of the distinctives of our church, and I were to lay it out for you and you all became convinced of it, then we could say we should change the statement of faith. If I were to lay it out for you and you said we're not convinced of that, then the honorable thing for me to do would be to say, I can't be your pastor anymore because here's these things that we've said we believe and I don't believe it. Which goes back to why I think it's good that we made certain things less specific because, you know, for example, I believe Jesus is coming back before the tribulation but I'm pretty sure we might have one or two missionaries who don't believe that, and I don't think we should immediately stop supporting them over that. And I'm sure that we have one or two missionaries who aren't quite where we are on the issue of God's sovereignty and salvation, but who are really fervent about sharing the gospel with people, and I don't think we should stop supporting them over that. So there needs to be a degree of latitude while having a clear commitment to what is true. Uh, Going then to the next flip it over the next page. This idea that he raised about looking for brokenness and humility in prospective church members. Why is that important? Why does that matter? Bob? Contrition is an act of genuine salvation. Okay. What do you mean by contrition? I'm not saying it's a bad word, but people don't use it, so define it for me. The, the realization of who you are, who, who God is, and what that means. Okay, you recognize you're a sinner and you humble yourself before God. Good. Jim? What were you going to say? We're good. Uh, uh, just the same thing, that, that that just shows the reason why we come to church. Okay. Yeah, there needs to be, uh, we, we come because there's an awareness of need, not an awareness of I'm all set, right? Okay. Um, there's also the reality that it is, some of this is a personality and some of this is the way that you're raised and some of it is probably a lot of reasons I'm not thinking of. 
there is a possibility, at least in my own life, where I think that it's easy to equate knowledge and agreement with facts as being the same thing as knowing God. And it's not. Knowledge and knowing facts is more like an academic kind of thing. Knowing God is a relational kind of thing. And if there's no corresponding change in your life, you know, it's easy to say who you think you are, but that's really shown in the interactions that you have with people around you. Do you actually love God, and does that come out in your conversations with people and the way that you act? Or do you just say it? Because it kind of can easily be kind of an empty sort of words. Along those lines, I think we need to recognize there needs to be a degree of time connected with church membership, but I don't think it needs to be years and years and years, or even months and months and months. It could be a matter of weeks and months, right? Until the person is ready, and until we just, you know, acknowledge some of these things, right? Um, what are some wrong ways we might twist this idea of brokenness and contrition? Yeah, it's easy to say just this person is down on himself or she's down on herself, so that's the same as genuine repentance, right? This is a big problem in the ministries of a lot of megachurches, and I'm not saying that the size of the church is the main issue, although here's the problem. You'll have a guy who will commit adultery, say I'm sorry, next week he's back preaching in some other church where the scandal didn't happen at. And then, because his own experience didn't actually ever deal with the sin, he sort of perpetuates this, this idea of brokenness. Well, yeah, I'm a sinner, but Jesus has forgiven my sin. Well, yeah, but you can't keep living that way, right? And so that's a danger that we need to watch out for with this idea of brokenness that has been a really common corruption of it in our, um, in our society and in larger, broader church culture lately. Why can't we use moral perfection as the standard for church membership on the other side of it? Jim? Uh, there'd probably be no members. Not probably. There wouldn't be, right? Because we're all sinners saved by grace, right? There's a sense in which we're new, cre new creatures and all of that, but there are still remnants of the old self that we're working to put off, right? And so as long as that is true, which is basically our whole lives, then... We can't use moral perfection as the standard because none of us can meet it. And this is where it gets... Uh, here's a tension, all right? Vows and covenants, right? I would argue that there is no man or woman who has perfectly kept their marriage vows. Now, I say that cautiously, right? I would also argue that there is no church that has fully lived up to their church covenant or church commitments. And I would argue along the same lines that there's no pastor or deacon who's lived up to the standards held up in Scripture. That being said, that is not an excuse going back to this idea of I'm a sinner, so it's just all okay because Jesus forgives the sin, so I don't need to worry about it. That's a false idea. My point is to say we have sometimes taken such a rigidly moralistic or holier-than-thou attitude to marriage vows, standards for pastors and deacons, church commitments, church covenant, 
that we have put an impossible burden on people such that they then try to hide when they're not living up to those things and they try to act as though they're living up to those things when they're not and that um, that that's what God's looking for in the first place. Now, again, God does not want us to carelessly make promises. And we should strive with every fiber of our being to fulfill the promises that we make before God. Whether it is a marriage vow, whether it is standards that God has laid out in Scripture for various offices in the church, whether it is commitments that we make on a regular basis to one another as church members. But at the same time, we need to recognize that the goal is not perfection in this moment because it's an impossible thing to accomplish in this life. The goal is a constant awareness of our need to depend on God and ask for His help, a a need for us to regularly repent when we fail in various areas, and a need for us to come alongside each other and not think that we have to do it all on our own. Last point. We can easily see that faith and repentance are important for membership, but why does baptism matter? Why does baptism matter in connection with church membership? Yeah. Baptism, he says here, is not, does not save a person, but Jesus meant for his saved individuals to publicly identify with him and his people. If you want to identify yourself with Christ's people and expect them to identify with you, you need to first identify yourself with Christ, which is the purpose of baptism. So, um, what then is baptism? Baptism is immersion. Baptism is something that's observed by more than just the person getting baptized. So, I know there are all these controversies in the history of the early church with John Smith, and all, not the early church, but the early history of, of Baptists in the 1600s. John Smith self-baptized like he dunked himself in the river. I don't think that's the point of what's supposed to happen. His idea was, you've got to start somewhere and I'm the only one. He had some other weird ideas that I don't think we should follow. Um, there is not a necessity of a link to some established church necessarily, as in, there is the reality that he pointed out, which is that if the only churches are Anglican churches or whatever kind of churches, and they're just sprinkling and they don't believe in baptism by immersion, how does anybody ever start getting baptized? So, I mean, I'll acknowledge that challenge. We're not at that point, right? You have a local assembly. You come to that local assembly. There is a public identification. Do you need to have unbelievers attend? No, but that would be a good thing. So, I mean, there's a case to be made for doing it outside where unbelievers can wander by and watch as opposed to in a church. There's a lot of reasons of convenience that we don't ever acknowledge that, right, as a possibility. Um, Does it have to be in a baptismal? No. Does it have to be in running water? No. Can it be in a swimming pool? Maybe. Does it have to be uh, a certain number of people attending? No. Should there be some people attending? Yes. Like the, The point is that it is a public identification with Christ, and in that respect is a prerequisite to church membership. Any quick questions on that or anything else as we wrap up? Yeah. The Queen's household in Ethiopia, yeah? Yeah, Ethiopia, okay. So, I mean, 
Yeah, pool of water, not a puddle of water, because they went down into the water and came back out. But yeah, and just people will use that and be like, well, it's just Philip and the guy, right? No, there had to at least be the chariot driver and probably some other people in attendance. So it was a public event, even though it doesn't seem like it at first glance. Any other thoughts? All right, let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for the opportunity to consider these important truths about what it means to become a part of your church. This takes great wisdom in not setting the bar higher than you have and also not setting it lower than you have and to have grace and to pursue what would honor you in all these ways. In Christ's name, amen.